All right, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today as we begin a new series of lectures on the Bible. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts uh, and put aside some of the preconceived notions that we often have developed over the years. But again, help us to open our minds and our hearts so that the Holy Spirit can really enlighten us as we go along uh, on this 10-week course. So we thank you for this time, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. In doing uh, the Acts of the Apostles, you always have to sort of tailor-make some of uh, the courses uh, to fit not only the audience, but... uh, the subject matter in itself. Uh, So what we're going to do is, uh, after about the 15th chapter, which is what I call the the first ecumenical council of the church, although it it is not officially given that title, but that's recognized, uh, we're going to skip some of the details in the rest of the Acts of the Apostles and get to the idea of what is the meaning of some of the uh, journeys that both Peter and Paul took. I think uh, since the chapters after 15 are somewhat of a travelogue on the journeys of Paul, who made three very important journeys, if you look at uh, the handout that you've got uh, this morning with the uh, map on the back side of one of the pages, you'll see how Christianity spread uh, after Christ uh, throughout the first century. And that's most primarily due to St. Paul. So we're going to spend a few of the lessons on some of the letters of Paul so that you get the essence of what is there. And also, uh, we will spend at least one session on the two letters of St. Peter. (coughs) All right. Let's get into what is the Acts of the Apostles all about. I'm sure that most of you have read this more than once, and hopefully in preparing for this course, you may have already started reading again, and that's fine. Uh, I can imagine that one of your first questions was, who in the heck is Theophilus? Okay? All right, well, the answer is not as easy as it may sound. First of all, if it is a human being, uh, we don't know who that is. Now, in the culture of this time, first century, uh, it was very common to have a patron or a benefactor assist you in writing. And we kind of think that Perhaps this was the name of 
St. Luke's benefactor as he wrote uh, both the Gospel and the Acts of the Apostle. But there is another theory. The word Theophilus can be broken down into two words. Theod, which is the Greek for God himself. And Philos, or philosophy, or any other interpretation, can be people. The word people. So it could be a general phrase meaning God's people, which would also apply. We are not certain which is correct, so it doesn't make a great deal of difference. It's not a very important item, but it is one that I've been asked, who is Theophilus? Theophilus. All right. And again, we don't know. As I said, the Acts of the Apostles is sort of uh, book number two by St. Luke and was intended to be uh, a sequel, you might say. Unfortunately, it ends rather abruptly and, as I've also said, the last half of the book is primarily devoted to the uh, journeys of St. Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles are pretty much uh, out of the picture. The other apostles, except for uh, a few mentions of James and John, uh, are not mentioned at all. <clears throat> so when it says Acts of the Apostles, it's really kind of referring to only two, Peter and Paul. And that is why we are going to be spending uh, the last half of this 10-week session uh, concentrating on who Peter and Paul is or was. And you might be surprised at what I have come up with, uh, things that we don't normally hear about. And uh, we'll just leave that for the time being, but it's interesting uh, when you start comparing the two men who didn't get along, you know, they were not buddy-buddies by any means, even though their objective was the same, uh, and of course their base was the same, but they didn't always see uh, eye to eye. And that's okay, we'll talk about that also a little later. I'm going to start out in the beginning with um, reading some of this, not all, but some of it, because to begin with it is rather important. <laughs> the one subject that comes up almost first in this book is the ascension of Jesus Christ. It says, when they had gathered, in other words, when the apostles and uh, the Blessed Mother and a few others had gathered together. Remember, after Christ's crucifixion, 
the apostles were left wondering, were they going to be next? Uh, were they going to be uh, persecuted like Christ was? Uh, so they kind of stayed out of the picture for a while. Not long, but for a while, a few days. But then the first major event in Christianity uh, after the death of Christ is his ascension into heaven. It says, when they had gathered together, they asked him, that is Christ, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he answered them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and throughout Judea and Samaria, and even in Roseville. Now, there's an important, important point here that is often overlooked. I think people don't take this particular book too serious, and yet there's some very important things here. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Have you ever thought about the apostles working miracles in the same way Jesus did? They did, and that is where the power came from, from Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that is one of the points I'm really trying to make here. If you go to this diagram, the Bible is written from the point of Abraham. I'll explain that a little later, but the point of Abraham and the first the first one third of this circle here is the time and the role of the Father in creating all mankind, creating the earth and so forth and so on, and establishing his plan of salvation through Abraham, and carrying it up to the point of Jesus Christ. At that point, because Judaism could not be the entire plan of salvation and fulfill all of its needs, Christ had to come and take up where Judaism left off. And what he left behind was the whole concept of Christianity. And that is the second uh, one-third of this circle at the bottom. But now that Christ has ascended into heaven, he then turns over the responsibility of carrying this plan of salvation back to completion eventually to be with the Father. And that is where we are at this point in time. 
you've often heard the term last days. All right. Well, most people, the moment they hear the words last days, they're thinking of the end of the world. Are you not? But as it is used here in the Bible in several different points, the last days are from <coughs> this point on, from the time of the Holy Spirit taking over. And the reason it is worded that way is that everything that we need to know for our salvation has come through the Father and the Son. And nothing new about God himself has ever been given to us after this point. But it is from this point to the rest of it, back to the end of our days and the end of the world, that is considered the last days, not just the end of the world. So if you hear that, you're talking about this whole one-third of the circle. Remember, there's only one God, but three divine persons, each having a distinct responsibility, and that is the way it works out. Any questions about that? I hope you all understand, because that will be important to the understanding of some of uh, what we are dis going to be discussing here in uh, this course. The ascension is the time um, or the ending, you might say, of Christ's term on earth and the beginning of the Holy Spirit. And so it says here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses etc., etc. And, of course, the Holy Spirit did come upon the apostles when? On Pentecost, 40 days later. Right? <clears throat> no, the 40 days is actually counted from the time of Christ's death. Yeah. And it says, when he said this, uh, and as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. And while they were looking intently at the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will return in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And that is when their time begins. Okay. But you have to sort of understand this whole book now is going to be featuring various works of the Holy Spirit. And it is something that we don't really hear a great deal about in sermons or anything else. 
Um, and so I want you to kind of not only understand but be comfortable with it because it's important. We should be praying for to the Holy Spirit uh, for advice, counsel, uh, comfort, whatever, uh, because it's important and that is his role. So, anybody have any problem with that? People have often asked me, uh, well, if Jesus was God, why couldn't he just stay here forever? Well, perhaps he could have, but that was not part of God's plan of salvation. I think if you look on the back of this little diagram, there's pretty much an explanation that would answer that question, okay? The other thing that I want to kind of have you think about in regard to the Holy Spirit is that, and I've had people say this to me, well, I feel like I'm cheating on Christ if I talk or pray only to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that may sound weird, but I've had that question uh, posed to me. Or I'm ignoring the Father if I... Pray to the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's only one God. I had one woman call me one day on the phone and said, I just heard something that I just think was terrible. And I said, well, what is that? And she said, well, she said, this priest told me that uh, along with Christ on the cross, the Father was there also. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it should have been just Christ. I said, no, you got to remember, there's only one God. Christ happens to be the face of God. But whatever one does, they all three do. All right. There is no division. There is no distinction uh, of purpose. There is distinction of being. But that is a mystery that we don't fully understand. And so don't worry about it if you don't get it. But it's important that you constantly remember there's only one God. Uh, so I said to this lady on the phone, well, the priest is right. He may not have been as clear as possible, but when Christ was on the cross, he was dying on behalf of the Father and the Holy Spirit as well. When the Holy Spirit is aiding a person in uh, performing some miracle, uh, he is doing it on behalf of Christ and the Father. They are all acting in unison. So I want you to kind of get comfortable with that because as we move through this course, that is the way it will uh be done. Okay. The other important thing is the uh, whole idea of Pentecost, which we celebrate <coughs> excuse me, 40 days after the death of Christ. And that is the official uh, 
birthday of the church, not the beginning necessarily of the church, but that is what we consider the birthday or the anniversary or whatever of the church. That is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, some people, well, in our last class when we were talking about the history of the church, a few people wanted to know what was the, the big uh, day that the church was actually started. Well, there was no big day in, in as far as celebrations of any kind. We talk about the Pentecost event as the beginning officially of the church, but technically we have to go all the way back uh, to Judaism and its purpose because as we've said before, Judaism is like the roots of our Christianity. I have heard a priest uh, say at Mass one day, uh, or part of his sermon, that we didn't have to pay any attention to the Old Testament uh, because everything that we needed to know would be in the New Testament. And I said, no, that is not correct. And, of course, that didn't go over too well. <laughs> uh, I said, we have to remember that even in our Mass, the first reading and the uh, responsorial psalm are from the Old Testament. And they reflect the teachings of the Old Testament. And therefore, we have to consider that the roots of Christianity began in the Old Testament with Abraham. God's plan of salvation was begun with Abraham, and it was the covenant made with Abraham that really began everything, and that covenant was renewed uh, with Moses and David and down through the prophets, etc., etc. But Judaism could never actually accomplish what God's plan of salvation was all about, and that was making restitution for the sins of mankind in order for mankind to return uh, to heaven. And therefore, Christ had to come and be that uh, divine uh, sacrifice which was necessary to make reparation for the sins of all mankind. And that is the apex uh, or the climax of God's plan. But it is the Holy Spirit who takes the benefits of both the Father and the Son and their efforts and carries them forward, helping us to get to heaven. So that's extremely important and the basis really for this book we call The Acts of the Apostles. Any questions so far? All right. I want to go on then. It says, when the time for Pentecost was fulfilled, that is, it was a Jewish holiday, not a holy day, 
it was a harvest uh, and a spring harvest day. Um, and the word Pentecost comes from the Greek, not the Latin, but the Greek meaning 50 days. And it's called really 50 days after Passover. Not 50 days after the death of Christ, because it was a Jewish holiday, obviously. So Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. But Christ was crucified on Passover. Did you ever realize get or get that connection? Christ was crucified on the Jewish Passover because he was the official Lamb of God. The completion of the Jewish Passover meal. All right. So the word Pentecost really means 50 days. <coughs> so the time of Pentecost, that's what this is all about. And suddenly there came from the sky, this is the people in this upper room, a noise like a wind driving force. And it filled the entire house in which they were. Then there appeared to them tongues of fire, which parted and came to rest upon each one of them. Fire has always been, since this time period, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And that is where the idea of wearing red comes from, the fire that is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them to proclaim. Uh, now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven staying in Jerusalem. And so at this sound, they all gathered. Um, they gathered in a large crowd around this uh, house or this building where this upper room was. Uh, but they were confused because when the apostles began to speak, uh, each one heard them in speaking in their own language. And they were astounded and amazed. And they asked, are not these people all Galileans? Then how does each of us hear them in their own native language? And it goes on to list all of these uh, names, half of which I can't pronounce anyway, so I won't do it. <clears throat> the time between the resurrection and the um, Pentecost, there's no documentation about what the apostles were doing? No. No. Apparently they were scared out of their wits, so they all were hiding. You know, to be honest about it. But no, there is no documentation. But they were there this day all together. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'll give you some of the unofficial uh, back thinking about all of this. Um, I think Dick and everyone who has been with me in these classes know that I don't always stick to the prime and 
you know, the formal wording. Uh, I like to give it to you as I kind of think it should be. There. So it is on this particular day of Pentecost, after this experience of receiving the Holy Spirit, and that's why in the Sacrament of Confirmation, there used to be, I don't believe there is anymore, the whole idea of fire being blessed, and um, there was a few other symbols that kind of disappeared over the years. I remember when I was uh, confirmed as a little child, you know, way back in the last century, the last millennium, uh, there was a, always, a, a, it was by the bishop only, nobody else, and there was always a little slap on the face, uh, indicating that along with this great sacrament, there is going to be uh, problems as well. But if we turn to the Holy Spirit for guidance, protection, and so forth and so on, we can deal with it. There. So <clears throat> Peter uh, is overwhelmed, you know, with this. You know how Peter is very exuberant and always got his foot in his mouth, that kind of thing. Uh, so he gets up and he preaches to all of these people. Now, I'm not going to talk about what he preached because I want to spend maybe a day or so on uh, that. And I think next week we will talk about the three major speeches that are referenced here in the Acts of the Apostles because there's some very important points in each one of them. Uh, there are by three different people and I think that uh, it is worthy of uh, us to get to know these people a little bit better. Okay. And through this, the speeches of, of uh, Peter and the others, uh, I want you to kind of read those for yourself from your Bible uh, during the week, but read them as if they were instructions rather than just events. Because so many people pass over these uh, letters, or speeches rather, as if, well, this is just an event that went on that day. But they aren't. They should be read as if they were addressed to you today. All right. So it's important that you get that kind of idea um, about these speeches. And as we go on, we're going to do a couple things. We're going to look at who is St. Peter. Uh, he was a fisherman. He was an apostle. He was the first pope. And he was a martyr. That's quite a mouthful for any one person. Uh, he was different in many ways. Very impetuous. Uh, but I think that he had certain qualities that Christ recognized that made him a leader in a way. But with the head of St. Paul, you might say, 
was the same kind of person. He was not a Palestinian Jew. He was a Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus, from Turkey. So he had a totally different viewpoint of what Judaism was all about. He was a fiery person, very opinionated, very brash. He was a persecutor. He was an apostle. He was a little possessive too, wasn't he? Uh, you might say that, yes. Uh, he was very well educated, but he was also a martyr. So the two men are really the main pillars of the church at that particular time. Uh, but they finally came to uh, an agreement, in a way, that Paul would go off and preach and display his abilities in converting the Gentiles. And Peter would remain uh, with his efforts being directed toward the Jewish converts to Christianity. So it's important that we see not only the similarities, but also the differences between these two people uh, and who they were and why. I had a man ask me one time, why would Christ ever uh, choose somebody like St. Paul uh, to do what he did? Well, we are all unique in a way. We all have qualities that God can use in one form or another. And we should kind of examine ourselves, take inventory, to see what those qualities are. We all have an opportunity. Christianity is not a bystander or a spectator faith. Christianity is a working job. Each one of us has been given a job, an opportunity. Part of my efforts here is to get you to see that your faith and your relationship with Christ is not fulfilled just by going to church on Sunday and being a good person. There's a great deal more to it than that. And it isn't that God is asking you for more work. He's asking you for a greater relationship, which then eases the idea of work into an act of love. And my whole objective here is to get you to see that. Because just going to church on Sunday is just not going to do it. And you'll find as you open up, open up your mind and your heart to Christ in serving him, that you will be much happier. And I don't particularly like the word happy because it's kind of a storybook. Uh, but content, peaceful, is much more related to the relationship idea that we should each have 
with Christ. Or the Father. Or the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, we don't want to rule each one out. But the, Jesus represents all three of them uh, when we talk about relationship with God. If you recall that he has appeared, Christ has appeared to many people, and it's always been Jesus Christ. Uh, the Father has not appeared to anybody. Uh, the Holy Spirit has not appeared to anybody. It's because it is Christ who is the messenger and the face of God. But please try to get into your mind and heart uh, the idea of opening yourself up to a much uh, more inclusive relationship through the Catholic Church. Yes, Julie. Well, yes, but you cannot, they, Julie's question is, uh, when we're talking about the faces of God, how about Mary? Well, Mary is very important, but not on the same level right. as God. Right, I agree. All right. Uh, and it is through Mary that many people offer their services to God. In fact, I just... through her, her intercession. Remember, nobody other than God himself, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, can work miracles. It is through the intercession of Mary and the saints and others uh, that we have, that mankind has experienced miracles. Uh, if uh, you hear somebody say, well, so-and-so worked a miracle, uh you have to be careful of that because only God can work a miracle. Uh, any questions? No questions at all? <laughs> yes, Bev? Good, thank you. Yes, 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 that is the job that we have, is evangelization, but that can take different forms for different people. We all have uh, different talents and qualities, uh, and God uses us where we are. He doesn't expect us, you know, to uh, go down to uh, the middle of old town and start talking on a soapbox or anything. No. He uses the qualities and the talents and the status of where we are today. And all we have to do is be open and willing to let him use us. Like I said, I've been teaching here at St. Clair for 22 years. I've never thought of that way in the beginning when I first started with Father McDonald. 
but I'm still here. <laughs> yes. Uh, locutions, well, the, the word locutions really means that these are more of audible voices uh, that can be heard. That probably is also Christ. Yeah. Uh, it is Christ who is and represents God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. But the Holy Spirit has his own particular time period for being responsible. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in the same way as we think about the Holy Spirit today. One of the uh, Psalms mentions Holy Spirit, but it is not in capital letters. The H and S are not in capital letters because they looked upon uh, God as the Holy Spirit, which of course was correct in their thinking at that time period. Okay. Uh, but other than that, the Holy Spirit was not known until the time of Christ who uh, brought him to the attention of the apostles and everyone else. And that's all in the Gospel of John, if you want to read that. Any other questions? Don't be afraid to ask. Yes, Vince. I'm sorry? Yes. They are in the uh, Acts of the Apostles. Yes, they'll all be there. Yeah. And they are mentioned there rather clearly in uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, in the beginning, yes. All right. Uh, after, of course, Judas hanged himself, there was one missing. We will see right here, I think it's in uh, chapter four, three, three or four of the Acts, how they uh, came together and decided to um, replace Judas, and that is how Matthias came into being, to bring it back uh, to the twelve. But Paul is also considered a, an apostle as well, and that is because the term apostle replies to those men who Jesus Christ appointed uh, directly. And Paul received his um, direction, for lack of a better term, uh, directly from Christ after uh, the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, but then the church came together over a period of time and added, as the apostles died out, they were replaced. And that has continued down uh, through all of the centuries since then, for the same reason. Yes, ma'am. Uh, 
what were the letters written on? Well, most of them were written on parchment. All right. And we do have a few uh, minor samples of some of those. Uh, and they're in the Vatican uh, Museum. Okay. But most of them are written on parchment or animal skin. Uh, paper, of course, or papyrus uh, was not uh, commonly used until much later. We have the twelve apostles. Yeah. We know that they scattered and as far as Spain and all around. Mm -hmm. But when did they disperse? Is that you had uh, the event of the Holy Spirit coming down? Did they leave then, or did they stick around and slowly drift? Slow. Well, slowly. Yes, slowly went in different directions. Uh, originally two by two, but then even that, they split up and went, as you say, all over uh, the Mediterranean area and, and to the east and as far as North Africa. We don't have uh, a lot of firm documentation on any of them, for that matter. So it's only uh, by references that are in later writings that we hear a little bit about some of them, but some we have no knowledge whatsoever. Yeah. It was not thought important at the time. Of course, looking back, we wish they had. Yes? Yes, many other writings. The question is, were there other writings that were not included in the New Testament? And yes, that is correct. There were and there are. However, when the New Testament was put together, which wasn't until the 4th century by St. Jerome, it was decided that they were going to include only those that could be fully documented as coming from the apostles. Because they had to make a cutoff somewhere. That doesn't mean that a lot of those writings that came in the second and third centuries on later were wrong or forbidden or anything else. We've often heard some of those stories. That's not true. They had to have a cutoff. And St. Jerome was the one who was uh, given that job, you might say, uh, to bring all of the writings together and translate them from their local language, because most of them were written in Greek or Aramaic, not Hebrew. Uh, and so Jerome translated them all into Latin. And <coughs> brought the New Testament together in the form we have it today. All right, And it's been that way ever since. Uh, yes, there's been a lot of, uh, in the early days, there's been a lot of uh, uh, discussion and thought about expanding on that and so forth. But then the problem would come up, well, where do you cut off? So uh, the first century writers, the apostles, 
are the only ones that are included in the New Testament. The Old Testament was pretty well complete as we have it today by the second century B.C. Uh, the wisdom books, the group of books we call the wisdom books, were the last ones to be written. And six of those, or yeah, six of those uh, were not included in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament simply because they were written in Greek and they were written uh, by people outside of Palestine. So the Hebrew uh, Bible contains six books less uh, than the Septuagint version or the Greek version. Okay. We use, we Catholics and most Christians use, well, no, I shouldn't say that. We Catholics use the Greek version of the Old Testament in, in uh, our book of the Bible. All right. Now, I've explained this many times before, but it sometimes is valuable of repeating again. The reason why some Protestant Bibles have six books less than the Catholic version is because of that same reason. Those, they were at the time of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. Uh, they decided to do away with a lot of things that were distinctively Catholic. And that was one of them. They went back and uh, they began to use the Hebrew version of the Old Testament which did not contain those six books and parts of a couple of others. So uh, there's nothing wrong with a Bible that is used by the Baptist Church or uh, you know the Lutheran Church or whatever. It's just that you will have uh, six books in the Old Testament that are not there. Uh, the New Testament is pretty much identical on both sides. The only other change is that in the Protestant version, uh, the Psalms are numbered a little differently than they are in the Catholic version, but there's still 150 Psalms in all Bibles. Yes, Mike? Does the number 12 uh, have any significance in being the number of apostles and also the number of tribes? Uh, coincidentally, they are the same. Yes. Uh, in the Jewish culture, the ancient Jewish culture, they were really hung up on numbers. In fact, one of the books of the Old Testament is called the Book of Numbers. Uh, they had three sacred numbers, three, seven, and twelve. All right. Uh, and then you might say, well, what about 40? We know that the term 40 has popped up in many, many locations within both the Old and the New Testament. Now let's go back to 3, 7, and 12. Uh, 3 is very important. That's where the Trinity comes from. But the people in the Old Testament didn't know that. 
coincidentally, that is the way it worked out. Uh, seven was very important to the people because that was uh, considered a, a whole unit uh, or the coming together of uh, a complete put together. It came from the idea of naming the six days of the year way back in Genesis plus the day of God's rest, seven days. And of course, the seven days of the calendar. Uh, Twelve was very important to Jewish, uh, the Jewish culture because it designated completeness. It was part of all of, all of the tribes, but it was complete, uh, a unit. And you might say that Judaism was established uh, by God through Abraham uh, and all of his ancestors, uh, all of his descendants. Uh, and 12 was sort of the limit to the number of tribes. And it was significant because that was the number of the sons of Jacob from which the 12 tribes developed. And of course, obviously, the apostles were the counterbalance to that. Oh, yes, yes. 40 was used as a convenience because, for example, when the Israelites left Egypt way back at the time of Moses, they wandered in the desert. They didn't certainly keep any calendars in the desert because why would they need them? But afterwards, when the writings about that event came about, they had no idea of how many years. They knew that there was quite a number, so they used 40. And that became a convenience for any of the writings later that talked about some historical event. So you have Noah and the Ark, Rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and you have, you know, Jesus in the desert. Yes, and there's so many of those. And it's a convenience time because there was no way to keep records or have anything specific. You know, we are so hung up on specifics these days, but there was no need for it in that time period. And uh, I always t talk about one event in the Old Testament that I call fast food, uh, it is when uh, the three angels appear to Abraham at the beginning of the story of Abraham. And he's so delighted to have some strangers because this was a nomadic era. And he runs off and he tells Sarah, go kill a catted, uh, fatted calf and bake some bread and do all of this and bring it back to, to the three strangers. Well, that had to have been fast food. You know. <laughs> because if anybody has ever killed a large animal, a deer or whatever, and tried to cut it up and so forth, it takes days and if not weeks. You know. uh, so poor Sarah would have had a 
really difficult time unless she could run down to the nearest Arby's or someplace like that, you know. Uh, uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that in the Old Testament that uh, we could joke about, but there's reasons behind it. Yeah. Yes. Well, he technically was not an apostle, uh, but he was a very close helper, you might say, to St. Paul. And there is indications that he spent uh, quite a bit of time with Mary uh, because so much of his writings. Now, you got to also remember that Luke was not writing uh, for the Hebrews. He was writing for the Greeks, and the Greeks honored their women. So he was interested in Mary. So we have so much of the infancy stories that we honor each Christmas uh, comes from Luke's gospel. Uh, and it's important that we kind of remember how each of the uh, gospels were written and for whom they were written. Uh, Matthew wrote strictly for Hebrew Jews, local Palestinian Jews, trying to convince them that this man that they called Christ was actually God himself. So that whole idea of Matthew's gospel is directed towards uh the Jewish uh, converts to Christianity. Luke's gospel is written just almost, you might say, from the Greek point of view. Luke might have been a Jew, but he was a Hellenistic Jew, had a totally different point of view, and wanted to write for his Gentile clientele. Mark was a historian. Mark wrote down just basic sayings of Christ. There's a lot of detail missing from Mark's gospel. The whole infant stories are not there at all. Uh, and each of those three, Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call the synoptic gospels because they started with Mark and then Matthew and Luke added on. But they are all sort of a bio, biographical uh, form. Talking about uh, the early days of Christ and going all the way through his death. Now, John's gospel comes from a totally different direction. He's, his gospel is more about God who came to earth as Christ for a purpose. And his audience was everybody. But it was in, in a totally different way. You had the three synoptic gospel writers were sort of looking up from mankind to God. John's gospel is sort of looking down from God mankind. You, you, you all understand that, I'm sure. You, know, you, got, 
get that in there. Any other questions? Well, as we go on studying uh, the Acts of the Apostles, I would like all of you to read uh, the first seven or eight chapters so that you'll get a better understanding, even if you've already read them. Please, for next week, read them again with emphasis on the speeches, the emphasis on the speeches that uh, are in there by Matthew and a few others, all right? Uh, but read the speeches as if they are instructions to you personally, because you'll get a different viewpoint and an understanding of them. Uh, next week, we will be talking primarily about uh, Paul, I mean, Peter's speeches and the others. Uh, we will also talk about who is St. Peter. Now, you all think you know about St. Peter, but there's a few things that you may not know, and I'll hope to bring those up. Okay. I hate to leave you early with a little extra time, but unless there's other questions, we will close a little early, and normally it is this time that we actually do the registration. Well, like I said, I forgot the registration form, so we'll have to wait until next week for that. Yes, Fernando. No, no, no. That that is a, a cultural cultural sort of uh, myth. No, no. Fernando's question was: in their culture, when a person dies, their body or their, their soul uh, sort of hangs around, yeah, <laughs> for, lack of a, for lack of a better term, yeah. for 40 days. No, no, that, that's a cultural thing, but no, the church would never honor that or make that kind of a statement, no, no. Now, there's one, there's one thing that I kind of, believe, but this is only old Mel's talking here now. But quite often when a person is nearing death, they go into a sort of a coma stage where their body is still functioning to a point, but they are not officially alert or really cognizant of what's going on or communicative. I feel that is the time that a person goes through purgatory. Hmm? No, 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 no. Now, that is a time when, you know, when we go to, and that makes sense because purgatory is the place where we are purified or we are cleansed, yeah, for lack of a better term, of those sins that have not been deadly sins, but something that has not been resolved on earth. But if if the time in this vegetative state where the person, the body is still functioning, except the mind is not, 
then I think that is the perfect time for us to experience purgatory. So if you're murdered, you go straight to heaven. You don't have to. No, no, no. If you're murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, do you think that, like you said, it takes a little while for them to pass away? Do you think that's when they're waiting for somebody to come to be with them before they die? No, but that—that's my my personal feeling of when purgatory is in effect. Yes, sir. Who are we praying for when we pray for the souls in purgatory? The people that are just on the verge. Well, we don't really know. We have to leave that up to God. Yeah, uh, We assume that those people who have no one to pray for them are the ones being helped by our uh, prayers that aren't being directed to anyone specifically. Yeah. Well, do, you believe, do you believe people that die, or is it just something I hear on TV that can come back? Uh, that really happens? No. No, no. You don't think they ever died anyway? Well, we all die, oh, yeah. yeah I, I know, but I was watching Dr. Oz the other day, and this lady said, she, oh, okay, everybody laugh now. Uh, she said she died and came back. Oh. Uh, well, there, yeah, there could be a resuscitation. Uh, yeah, but if the person is really dead, Clinically dead, no, they cannot come back. No. Yes. The old nuns back in grammar school told the story of this person who was dying, and he knew or he told them that, that when they said the mass, he would be in purgatory until they said the mass for him. And so he died, and they had a priest there waiting. As soon as he died, the priest said the mass. And he came back and he said, why did you take so long that I was in purgatory? <laughs> yeah, There's yeah. no limit in purgatory. Well, that's, that's, see, that's why I think it makes sense if that time period when our bodies are not functioning properly that we experience purgatory because we are still here on earth when our soul should have taken care of that in the past. But then again, that's only my, my. Well then, this is just staying here a little bit. But, so what about people who are in their teens, stages of years, they are really bad guys? Not necessarily. No, that, that's a medical problem. I, I don't think we should put anything. It's on the same level. No, no. That doesn't mean that, you know, they're near death if they've been uh, in a vegetative state for years. No. All right. It's a little bit early, but like I said. Well, yes, yes. There's a lot of that. Yeah. As I said before, we start promptly at 9.30. We end a little bit early or sometimes a little bit late, but that's it. So let's end our prayer, uh, our meeting today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Lord, we thank you for bringing us together to share this time. Unfortunately, it probably wasn't as structured uh, as well as I could have or should have been, but that's the way it is. We do it as best we can. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.